<clears throat> well, thank you. <coughs> it's great to be with you, Chapel Hill family. Yeah, it's been a long time, and we'll, we'll be talking about all those good things that we've shared together. Um, but right now, I, this is family service, right? So, so Marilee is going to be paying attention to who we can pick on if other people are not giving answers. I've already established Bob and Marty are a couple, but now I see <laughs> Ryan and Betsy, I can pick on you too. So pay attention to her. Well, so what I want to do is tell a Bible story from God's Word. So are you guys going to listen? I'm going to ask you kids questions. So you got to pay attention, okay? This is a Bible story from 2 Kings chapter 7. And it's about Israel, you know, the northern part of, of the kingdom, and they were being at war. They had been besieged, or they were at war with another nation called Syria. And they had come down and cut off all the food. People were starving inside of the city of Samaria for weeks because the armies encircled them and wouldn't let any supplies come in. It was terrible. Well, there was four men outside of the gate of Samaria. These guys were lepers. Now, that means someone who has a terrible skin disease, and the whole city made them go out and live outside of the city because they were afraid they'd catch the disease. So this is called leprosy. These guys were lepers, so they didn't have any community or family or anything. They're outside, and inside Samaria was shut up, and people were starving. They said to themselves, what are we doing sitting here? We're going to die. If we go into the city, it's a famine. No one has food. We're going to die. It, we're better off just to go to the camp of the Assyrians, the Syrians, and just give ourselves up. If they kill us, huh, we'd die anyway. So off they went to the camp of the Syrians. And what do you think they found when they got there? No one was there. All these huge, massive soldiers and army, and no one was there because the Lord God had confused them. In the night, they all dreamed that chariots and horsemen were surrounding them. They heard the noise. They heard the noise. And they thought, we got to get out of here. We've got to run for our lives. So they took off and, and left, and that's what the Lord God had done. So when the lepers came inside the camp, they went into the first tent and there was all sorts of food, all sorts of animals, supplies, silver, gold. They couldn't believe their eyes. They started eating. Oh, man, this is great. Then they ran, and they went into the next tent, and they did the same thing. They ate food. The stuff was still cooking. There was animals. There was silver and gold. They dug holes and hid the stuff. And then they, they looked up, and they said to each other, Brothers, what we're doing is not good. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. we got to go tell the, the city. So they ran on back to Samaria, and they yelled to the gatekeepers, we got to tell you the good news. And the gatekeepers told the king, and the king sent messengers to check it out. And sure enough, they couldn't believe it. The place was loaded with food and flour and oil and animals, and the whole city of Samaria came out and plundered that camp of the Syrians, and they were saved from starvation. Isn't that amazing? Okay, guys, so I'm going to ask you a first question. What was the good news that the lepers discovered? What? The what, honey? They left. 
they, well, the first good news was, yeah, there was no enemy there. The soldiers from, from Syria had left. Yes, that was good news. What else did they discover? Okay, yeah. There was all sorts of items, supplies. What did you hear? What kind of things? Yeah, bread. Who knows? Meat, animals. Yes. Who did they need to tell? That's the next question. Who did the lepers need to tell? Yes. Who were they supposed to, who did they think, oh, we got to go tell the good news? Yes. They had to go back to the city of Samaria and tell the good news. And then last question, what was the result? What happened because the lepers told the good news? Anybody from this table? Calling on you, picking on you. <laughs> Anybody? What was the good news? Or what was the result? What happened to those starving people? What do you think? They were saved because they all ran out and they plundered the camp of the Syrians and they were saved. Isn't that an amazing story? That was sure a day of good news. Thank you, you guys. You did great work. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's always nice to reflect on good news in our lives. Uh, you probably have read some of the same books we've had and some of our mentors have said, Every day we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And uh, so we're going to remind ourselves of how broad and high and wide and deep is this love of God that surpasses knowledge. We're going to remind you of that and remind ourselves of that this morning. And then we're going to take a quick look at what does it mean to share that kind of good news with the people that are in your relational network, your family, your neighbors, colleagues at work. Uh, we're going to look at those two things today. And uh, if we had more time, by the way, we worked most of our lives in Africa. Then we moved on to Asia. We're also in Bulgaria. And in all of those places, most people don't wear watches. We just kind of go for however long it seems like we should go. So uh, <laughs> when I see Peter get up and walk out, I'll know we've gone too long. Uh, but if I were to ask you, what is the gospel, and I am asking you that, you get about 10 seconds to put it together in your head. Oftentimes, we're so used to that word that we forget all that it entails, and we want to review that uh, today with you. In uh, Mark chapter 1, so very early on in the book of Mark, we see that Jesus came into Galilee, Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As we look at scripture, especially in the New Testament, but if you looked at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'd find the same thing. This word gospel and good news are used interchangeably. And um, so what is the gospel or the good news talked about in the Old Testament and talked about in the New Testament? What is it? include um, what was the content of what Jesus proclaimed as Mary Lee and I were chatting a couple weeks ago thinking about okay what does the gospel mean to most people um, are usually well actually Marty already gave me a knee-jerk response he said Jesus is the right answer for anything you ask me uh, 
but, but in fact, Jesus did little about preaching about his death, resurrection, and bringing us into relationship with him. But usually we see Jesus preach the gospel of the kingdom. And uh, there's a word in, uh, in Greek, uh, and it's where we get our, our word, the gospel. Euangelion uh, becomes, you can see it as evangel, evangelistic, good news and um, the gospel are synonymous there. In the Old Testament, it was often uh, somebody that would be sent from the battlefront and if they won, they would go and run to the king and run to the, their leaders and say, we won. That's good news. And, and that's kind of how it was used in the Old Testament. When we get into the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene, uh, we can see that on the one hand, Jesus is preaching good news of the kingdom. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. But Jesus was the good news. So he preached the good news and he was the good news. And when he spoke, good news or good things happened. People got healed, people got fed, people had their sins forgiven. So it's really a broad word as we look at it going through the New Testament. What is the gospel? It's a whole bunch of things. Yes. And really, when we look at the, how good news started when God put us in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Genesis 1 and 2, everything was perfect and whole. And it was called shalom. I'm sure you've heard that word before. Shalom is a big Hebrew word that means completeness and fullness and maturity. Um, when we, and this is, now kids on your tables back there, you'll have a sheet of paper with a kind of a person, a stick figure in the middle with arrows. And we're going to talk about this now, and you can write in, if you can, you guys can write, what it means, and you can draw pictures of it later. But anyway, in the garden, there was, you know, the way God created us is in four basic human relationships. We have our relationship with God, that goes up. Those arrows go up. Relationship with God. Then the arrows over here are relationships with other people in community. And then there's, a, there's an arrow that goes to our heart. Relationship with ourselves. Who we see ourselves to be. What is our identity? How do we value ourselves in light of the truth? That's important. That's the third relationship. The fourth relationship, the relationship with creation. All the resources that God has given you and me individually to, to steward. Those are four relationships that in Genesis 1 and 2 were whole and good and flourishing. Well, it didn't last long, did it? What happened in Genesis 3? Mankind sinned against the Lord God, rebelled, and everything was broken or marred. Still, you know, we retained that image of God, but it's broken and marred. And so when Jesus came as the Son of God to rescue us, to die on the cross, his blood cleanse and, and make us whole, he redeemed all four relationships. He didn't just deal with us and God. He, he brings holism and, and holistic restoration to all of those four relationships. And that's the potential for restoration now. And we can praise God for that because that is really good news for all of life. And early on in the first chapter in the, of John, it says, is most people rejected Jesus when he came, but as many as received him, he gave them the privilege 
and the opportunity to become children of God. So if we come into that relationship, we are now adopted as sons and daughters, and we have a whole new job description as we look at being ambassadors for the kingdom. And uh, the kingdom of God is really wherever God rules or reigns perfectly. So the kingdom of God can come into uh, my environment if I'm following Jesus and obeying him. But uh, when Jesus came into the world, we had all that darkness that started in Genesis 3, but now the light had come into the world. And so now we've got light able to shine and able to rule in our world, but it's not perfect yet. We're still moving towards that. And the final piece, of course, the good news of the kingdom means personal salvation, knowing Jesus Christ, having our sins forgiven, and having hope for heaven, and all these other things that we've talked about as well, broader than maybe we could ever imagine. So again, in Genesis 1, we see that man and women were made in God's image. And we don't have time to explore that right now, but that is a pretty powerful idea. But in Genesis 3, that image got scarred or marred, and it wasn't the way it was in Genesis 1 and 2. So did God dump his plan and say, well, uh, you know, I guess we'll just kind of stumble along with you. No, he kept the plan. And uh, we see in Romans 8:29, where he says, um, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. So for all of us who are believers, the idea of spiritual formation or being formed into the image of Jesus is still there for us. God didn't abandon the plan. In fact, he's working it through as we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he promises us, I love Philippians um, 1, make it bigger, you know, 1, 6. <laughs> Philippians 1, 6, that he who's begun this good work of forming us into the image of Jesus, he's going to carry it to completion until the day of Christ. What a promise. And so the other exciting fact is that he has made us his partners. Ephesians 2.10, he's made us his workmanship. His masterpiece is really the word, uniquely designed to carry out his good works, which he's going to do through us in this world to give eternal impact and glory to God. That really encourages me because I don't have to live with Marty the way he is today. I know God's continuing to move him into the image of Jesus, so there's hope ahead, Julie. Um, <laughs> but as we become kingdom citizens, it gives us the opportunity to be on mission with God. And um, that mission was described initially, I'm not going to read through all of that, you can read it while I'm chatting here, but uh, God chose Israel through Abraham to display his glory and to be this great thing to the nations around them. So in, in verse 7, it, the nations around them are going to look at you, Israel, and say, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? So God is, he's really among the people of Israel. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so, right, so righteous as these that I'm giving to you today. God's intent is he gave all these laws to the Old Testament Israel was that people would look at him and they would go, wow, mm -hmm. your God is unbelievable. We've never heard about a God like that. And so it's, 
it's kind of really the wow factor that all of us should have as we bask in the sun of the gospel and uh, as, we, as we join God in his mission. Um, I, on the next slide, we see in Galatians 3.8, he didn't abandon that. Of course, you read the Old Testament, it gets kind of discouraging um, how often Israel went to the Baals, went to other idols, just didn't follow God. But God didn't give up on them, and he didn't give up on his promise to Abraham. Galatians 3.8 says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So even in the beginning, he planned for those of us who were not Jews to join that great crowd that would bring glory to God and people would look at us and say, you're really different in a good way. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to know more about that. How did you get to be that way? And that then lets us uh, go along with Jesus's final words, which says, go and make disciples of all of the nations. So we start with our families, we start with our cities, we start with our state and our country, but we go out to all the nations because that was God's plan back in Genesis and it remains his plan as we get into the New Testament. And as we disciple people, disciple the nations, it includes even what God gave from the very beginning. Um, on that next slide, God gave kingdom laws to Israel. And this kind of really hits you. You can read through, slog it through Leviticus, you know, all those laws. But when you look at the breadth of the laws, here's God's giving commands to his people that cover areas of leadership, the judicial system, civil law, uh, skin diseases, dietary diseases, um, sin offerings, how to worship God, how to be forgiven of sin, economics, how to care for the poor. I mean, this is just a smattering. This really hit us that this is God's care. This shows kingdom living. This brings glory to God, every area of life under his lordship. And then, of course, Jesus continued that. When he uh, launched on his ministry, he taught about communicating and, and knowing God. He taught about sins forgiven. He fed the hungry. He made hundreds of fish. We've maybe all seen The Chosen and seen that amazing uh, story when the, the, when the fish make the boats capsize. It's just amazing. But Jesus covered every area of life. He stilled the sea. He cast out demons. He was Lord of every area. That's what the good news entails. Lord of all, every part of life. So... Um, let me look at Ryan. Ryan's got a, he's not smiling right now, but if we look in the mirror every morning and say, oh, there's a piece of art. God's working on Mira Lee. Um, I and so. I can celebrate that because of all of the areas of life that he cares about and that he's guiding me in. We can leave our house pretty excited and start to think about who's in our relational network. When you think of relational networks, I'd like you to think in terms of who are my neighbors, and I'm gonna ask you to be thinking, who are the top two neighbors? Who are the top two relatives? Who are the top two coworkers? Who are the top two families in my kids' environment that God has put on my heart and has said, I'd really like you to help draw them into the kingdom so that they also can be kingdom citizens, followers of Jesus. So um, we're going to give you three perspectives on 
how you might assess those people because um, people are not just cookies cut out of, they don't all look the same and they don't all need the same approach as we share the good news with them. These are some things that we have done in our own neighborhood, but they're also things that we train uh, our folks overseas to do. Um, and and they, they work. Mary Lee and I grew up in a nice Baptist uh, church, and we learned to do the four spiritual laws, and you just go up to somebody at the mall and start reading it to them, or steps to peace with God. Or, or evangelism explosion. We did the evangelism explosion where you go to door to door. You don't even need know the people. Knock on the door, and you give the same spiel. Yeah. I'll call it a spiel to everyone. But everybody's different, and things have changed a lot more in the last 50 years since we were doing that. And so what's a way for us to look at the people that we are wanting to draw into the kingdom of God? One of the ways is something called the gray matrix of conversion. Now, you are, you're not going to read any of that stuff, but I'm going to just say on the axis that goes up and down, that axis is how much knowledge do people have about God, about the Bible, about Jesus, um, because how much knowledge you have really determines where you need to start. We were working in Vietnam, I suppose it was about five years ago, four or five years ago, and Mira Lee asked the assistant that was showing us around uh, what she thought about Jesus and the Bible, and she said, I've never read it. We don't read it here in Vietnam. So they're starting with a very minimal understanding of who Jesus is and who, what the scriptures are. Whereas when we went to Uganda uh, back in 1986, uh, they had 100 years of Christianity. We could talk about the Bible with anyone. They wouldn't be offended, even if they were not a follower of Jesus. So one of the things to think about is how much knowledge does the person have that I want to draw into the kingdom of God by, by God's mm -hmm. grace? And then the, the axis that goes horizontally is how open are they? So if you have a co-worker and you hear him say to somebody, if, uh, if Peter mentions Jesus again, I'm going to punch him. Well, that's not very open. So Peter, I mean, Peter, if he overheard that, he would make sure he's careful with that person. But the level of openness that somebody has also is how we need to assess them. Some people are saying, I just need more than I currently have in my life. And, and they're much more open. So we look at how much knowledge they have about the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and how open they are. And that's one of the ways that we can understand where do I begin with these folks. Another way is called five thresholds of conversion. Just means like there's a sequence, five milestones. It comes from a book, I Once Was Lost, What Postmodern Skeptics Taught Us About Their Path to Jesus. So these two guys did big surveys, wrote a book, very insightful that these postmoderns shared, you know, the first thing that has to happen is you got to learn to trust a Christian. you got to come to know them and trust them. Pretty obvious. Um, after that, and they start watching our lives and getting to know us, they become curious. That's our prayer, that they'd see something in us. Like, wow, that friend of mine, Bill, really has a peace in his heart, and he just lost his job. Wow, so they're becoming curious. So you can see on that matrix scale, they're becoming more open. And then we can start sharing, dialoguing with them. They become open to change. They start thinking, wow, I don't have that peace in my heart. 
I'd kind of like to know what that would be like. And so the, the openness is, is um, coming more and more. And at that point, they're probably ready to start looking at more knowledge. Perhaps we could start the um, investigative Bible study with them. You want to share the scriptures? Could we meet just a little bit? Something like that that would lead to that. And they would be more open and they're starting to seek after God. And as the word of God permeates their hearts and their minds and as we share the full gospel with them, they can enter the kingdom and come to faith. But it doesn't happen like that. And we have to ascertain where people are and we have to pray a whole lot. Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, show me how to connect with this person in the right way. And one final way to look at people is how does the gospel first come to them? How would it most be helpful for it to come to them? So if you look at scripture, Nicodemus had a lot of questions he wanted answered. And so he needed to have words and, you know, the big word is apologetics, but he needed to study some stuff to understand it so that he could enter into all that Jesus was talking about with the good news of the kingdom. The demon-possessed man needed to have a powerful sign. He needed to be delivered from his demons. And, and that's true for people that need to be delivered from alcoholism or drugs or a variety of other addictions. We encounter in the places we go uh, true demon possession as well. And, and so you're not going to just talk to somebody and say, well, you have to be born again. Let me explain to you. Those folks need to have the power of God just kind of hit them hard and deliver them so that they can then move forward in their relationship with God. And then finally, uh, a big part of our ministry in Discipling for Development is demonstrating in all parts of life um, what a compassionate God is like. What's he like as he deals with marriages? If we don't have enough food, but we can help somebody improve their agricultural techniques, that is an inroad into them saying, Oh, and you did that, you, you're a believer, and this is allowing my family to actually buy stuff for our kids to go to school, and uh, they need compassionate deeds. So as you're looking at somebody and as you're understanding them, it's helpful to think from that perspective. What does this person most need? Do they need power, deliverance? Do they need logic? Do they need to, uh, we used to have a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, if you go and look and when that was written, you'll know when, when we our era was. But, but that was very big back in the 60s and 70s where people wanted to know. But uh, more recently, people want to experience the compassion of a believer and of God. And many people need to be delivered from their addictions. Well, we want to give you kind of um, a visual of what ministry has been like for us. And because Chapel Hill family, 36 years ago, you sent us out <laughs> as a main sending church. And we have been so blessed to be in partnership with you. You've prayed us through many hard things. You have walked with us, supported us generously, and we are so grateful. And you sent us off to Uganda in 1986. Yeah. So this is a, a video um, that shows what God has been doing these past what, 20 years since our Ugandan brethren that we discipled have taken over. And we started in three communities, and they're now in a 210, seeing people coming to faith in Jesus and seeing great transformation. So I hope that you can share in this harvest because we did it together. So let's watch this video. 
1987, Gary and I recruited two other American couples and moved to eastern Uganda to pioneer a work among rural, marginalized communities. We chose Uganda because it was among the 30 poorest countries of the world at that time. First, we recruited a Ugandan headmaster, Kefa Makota, who believed in the vision of whole life discipleship. We spent nine months discipling Kefa spiritually, physically, environmentally, and relationally. And through his leadership, we were able to launch a pioneering team. This American team of community disciple makers included a physician, a nurse, a teacher, two theologians, and an agriculturalist. During the first year, we as a team immersed ourselves in language and culture study while looking for other mature Ugandans who could join us. Those having a passion for Jesus, a passion for the scriptures, and a passion for the lost. We trained these new Ugandan friends in the process of engaging communities holistically. Our team helped to catalyze a new vision, transforming communities through whole life discipleship. Our team, made up of Americans partnering with Ugandans, prayed and fasted together, studied scriptures and community development together, and chose three communities of about 1,500 people each in which to start. In these communities, we worked with small groups of 10 to 12 key local leaders. Those came from women's groups, health groups, agricultural groups, and other leadership groups. Knowing that many in these communities were oral learners, we adapted our training methods to their needs. Our prayer and vision was that 75% of these key leaders would become disciples of Jesus and help us ignite a multiplying life-to-life disciple-making movement of the gospel. Our meetings integrated Bible studies with the felt needs in the community, health, agriculture, income, marriage, spiritual life. This made for a seamless transition between what we saw as four basic relationships described in scripture, man with God, man with himself, man with others, and man with his environment. As our Ugandan colleagues experienced transformation in their own lives and families, they became passionate whole life disciplers of their neighbors in these communities. What did this transformation look like? It was really amazing. Healthy families became the norm. Serious sickness and, and diseases that were preventable and caused death like diarrhea became unknown. Improved agricultural techniques greatly increased household incomes and food supply. With this increase in income, people were able to build permanent homes with cement floors. They remained food secure even in the dry season and they could pay for their children's education even up through the university levels. From that simple start in three communities, today more than 200 communities have been impacted by this movement. Over half of the key leaders in these communities have become multiplying disciple makers. Over 1,600 community members are also serving as multiplying disciple makers who have spontaneously birthed over 40 churches. We told our disciple makers they only had to be one week ahead of their disciples. Even in the early years, one disciple maker could point to another and say, this is my disciple, and that person would say, this is my disciple, and we could see three to five generations of disciple makers. Becoming a multiplying disciple maker was an expectation and reality in these communities. 
Without question, a disciple-making movement continues today. Over the years, our Ugandan colleagues have been equipping whole life disciples in other countries, in Africa, Asia, and Eastern Europe. At least three other disciple-making movements have begun as a result of their co-laboring with us in Rwanda, Malawi, and elsewhere in Uganda. Now our role is to come alongside them, to strengthen and encourage them as they advance the gospel in these new ministry frontiers. After 30 years of ministry, we have seen communities like these living on the margins, socially and economically, as the most open to the transforming power of the gospel. In fact, they are a huge potential labor force of multiplying disciple makers among the lost. We praise God for this amazing fruit borne by our teams through the power of the Holy Spirit. May these multiplying disciple-making movements continue throughout our worldwide partnership to the glory of God. We need to give a hand to the Lord. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's amazing to see what God has done over all these years. It's been a long time. <laughs> we uh, merged with the Navigators uh, 15 years ago, and they have been, they are in 116 countries. We were in five when we merged, and now we have really, by God's grace, been in 22. And um, amazingly, just this past year, the Lord has opened the door for us to move into Latin America um, and start in the poorest country there, which is Bolivia. So in October, we'll be making an exploration trip down there to see. Okay, Lord, who are the partners you want us to work with? What would it look like down here? Um, kind of starting again. That's, that's exciting. So just for ways you can pray for us, y'all. We just You've been at it with us for so long, and we are so blessed for your, the way you've partnered in prayer. And it really is, it comes down to prayer. It's like we've written hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lessons and have great workshops, and we've got great mentors. But um, what does it matter if the Holy Spirit is not using this and, and creating understanding in all the cultures we go into and giving them power to carry it out. So Bolivia is coming up. Bulgaria, Eastern Europe is probably the toughest place we've ever entered. We're really struggling there now. We'll go back on the 29th of August and just see our partners there and see if we'll even continue. So you can pray for um, the Lord to really do breakthrough uh, in, our, in our partners on the ground's lives there. We just got back from the Philippines in the middle of June. That was a great time. And our partners after eight years there are really carrying on, expanding into new communities, new teams. Um, and that's really a base for Southeast Asia to see them doing that in the Philippines. Pray for our family. We still have several in our, in our, our own family, close-knit families that don't know the Lord. Um, we're actually going to a, a camp this next week with our granddaughters up in um, Wisconsin, and it's a Bible camp. And just to hopefully that they can be touched by the, the power of the gospel, the good news would capture their hearts. That's what we would love to see. Um, we don't really see retiring. Um, I mean, we, we, everybody else is around us. It's like, what's the matter with us? Um, we say, Lord, if you give us health and strength and power to think, 
and travel. Um, we'll, we'll cut back like we're doing only four international trips this year, but we hope to be able to keep doing this with the experience and the wisdom God has given us um, till, we're, till we're done. Even that song, what? It's like you go till you're, till you're dead or whatever. That's what we, <laughs> we hope to do. So we just want to say again, thank you so much, and I'll just, I'll just close us in prayer. Father in heaven, um, all the glory belongs to you. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. We thank you for your beautiful heart that includes the whole world. In fact, your redemption includes the whole universe, Jesus, and you've called us to be part of that. And so thank you. Thank you for our brothers and sisters here at Chapel Hill who have been such great partners. Would you pour out your spirit on us, Lord, that we start in our own families and neighborhoods to bring that one or two that you have put on our heart to faith in you, Jesus, to enter your kingdom. May we continue, with Chapel Hill continue being the great um, missional heart that they have for the whole world. And would you bless our efforts, Lord, till the day you come back. Thank you for this chance to be together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.